Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's Wednesday, January 18th. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the city give him a drink. We start here. An Arizona community is told its water supply is being shut off. I'm happy I have a pool because every time it rains, at least I can cipher that. Amid a worsening drought, we are seeing more skirmishes at the spigot. She was turned down for asylum, so she took her case to the Supreme Court. Whether federal courts in this country should be able to second-guess immigration officials and the decisions they make in asylum cases. Now, a transgender migrant could determine the fate of many, many more. And are they saving the mentally ill or just sweeping away the homeless? There is an alternative that preserves both their self-determination and dignity. Who gets to decide if someone should be sent off to a mental hospital? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. As we've watched bizarre weather events pound the West Coast, it's worth remembering how supercharged all this has been by a sweeping mega drought. And that's not just California. We're going to turn now to the dangerous drought at Lake Mead. The drought-stricken Colorado River. Arizona and Nevada will need to drastically cut back on water use. Across the Southwest, officials are becoming more and more concerned that these droughts will affect every part of their residents' lives. Farming gets tougher, jobs become more scarce, people stop moving to your town. Like, if water is the key to life, a lack of water can lead entire communities into a death spiral. Which is why, for years, local officials have quietly dreaded potential for water wars, a situation where states further upstream start hogging river water, leaving others dried out, or where towns start telling each other, you can't have our water, go find your own. Well, in recent days, that has been happening in the city of Scottsdale, Arizona, essentially telling nearby communities without full plumbing systems of their own that they're hangers-on and that they're going to be cut off from the city's water supply. This has reached a fever pitch in recent days, but Ashley Paredes has been covering this for months. She's with our Phoenix affiliate, KNXV. Ashley, thanks for being with us. Can you help us just understand what's happening here? Yeah, so it's the Rio Verde Foothills area, an unincorporated area that sits on the outskirts of the city of Scottsdale. A really quiet, remote area where a lot of people go to retire. A lot of people out there are ranchers. Um, they have horses, livestock. Good job. Good girl. A lot of these people have told me that about, you know, two decades ago when they moved into the Rio Verde Foothills community, uh, they were told that there would be no problem. Their water was going to be um, given to them through the city of Scottsdale. We did everything that they asked us to do, finding other resources, coming, having it brought into us. They could get their water hauled or they could, you know, put in their own well. I found this land out here, to me, it just seemed like a gold mine. There were no issues at the time. And really, uh, a lot of the realtors in the area did not even mention uh, much more than that to residents that were buying a home because it wasn't an issue. And they did not see it as an issue in the foreseeable future as well. 
I kind of knew going into this house uh, when we purchased it that it was not a very sustainable solution what was going on, but I thought that there would be a fix and that there's no way that we could be left dry. There was never a required condition by the city of Scottsdale because they are essentially on the outskirts and not within the city of Scottsdale limits. Drought concerns forcing the city of Scottsdale to rethink who it can supply water to in the coming years. Just about a year ago, residents in that area were warned that if there was a drought, there was that contingency plan that they would no longer receive water from the city of Scottsdale. There used to be lines of trucks here bringing vi uh, vital source of water to the Rio Verde Foothills residents. Now, nothing. People in that area feel like they are left high and dry, literally. There's limited resources. You can't keep developing and developing and not have a long-term source of water. The city of Scottsdale, January 1st, they said we are ending the good faith agreement that we had and can no longer provide water uh, to all the residents out there. Wait, if you don't have like a well built in, how do these houses usually get water? Like you have a tank and somebody comes by and fills it or? Yeah. So basically a lot of these people, if they're getting their water hauled, they do have a large tank that is built underneath uh, the ground uh, that can fill up to about 5,000 gallons of water. They take the 5,000 gallons and they use that possibly throughout the month. Now the water they use a hauler to bring that in. Some people are able to haul their own water. Maybe they have a huge, um, you know, couple hundred gallon tank that sits on the back of their truck. But most people are using a hauling service. They could provide up to, you know, 6,000 gallons of water um, on, you know, a two-week basis, a monthly basis. And so oh, it's, it's like a guy with like a huge tanker who goes into Scottsdale and fills up. Exactly. So on January 1st, that stopped. Huge increase in time it takes to deliver the water to the customers out here the manpower it takes. The Instead of that, you know, water hauler being able to go to the city of Scottsdale, they were no longer able to access that water source. We can't just hit any other one municipality up. We have to take our loads from multiple areas. It's more than just a business. This is a community. It's my friends. It's my neighbors. And, you know, I'm obligated to them. One woman that I uh, last spoke with, she was actually telling me that she is so happy she has a pool because we've had some recent rains and the pool has collected that water. She has a filtration system. We use it mostly for showering, for, you know, washing clothes, the bathroom. Other people, they're buying uh, barrels uh, or water hauling um, like horse water troughs. And what they're basically doing is hoping that it rains and using that water as well to do just certain tasks, you know, around the house. I don't know, but once you can't flush the toilets, your house is not really habitable. So that's the scary part. And for a lot of these people in about a week, I'm told, they're not going to have any water. And so they're going to le be left with nothing. So a lot of the community members got together. They raised funds to hire a law firm that would represent the community. Mm. Their first hearing is on Friday. So this is moving pretty quickly. Uh, they have filed a temporary restraining order and a stay that would essentially, if approved, you know, would put the city of Scottsdale in a position where they would have to provide water until 
the case is settled or there's a final resolution on this. And so what is the rationale from like the city of Scottsdale? Because I can understand these residents right outside being like panicked now. But the mayor of Scottsdale, I was looking at a statement of his back in December that does not seem to have a ton of sympathy. He said, quote, there's no compassion in the water game. And another quote, there's no Santa Claus here. Like he, he doesn't care where you get your water, just not in Scottsdale. Yeah. You know, and I've reached out multiple times to them um, and they continue to say the same thing, that they were never required to give water to anybody on the outskirts, including this community, which is an unincorporated area of Scottsdale. They say, hey, we did this as a favor to you guys. We did not have to do this ever. And now I know it's an unfortunate situation, but, you know, we have to take care of our own residents, our own water source, and we don't want to be depleted. And so this is just the first step. And you can imagine Scottsdale not be the only city where this becomes a thing. More and more Americans have been moving to the Sun Belt, to the places where you've got droughts happening and now precious few resources to support that growing population. All right. Ashley Paredes from our affiliate KNXV in Phoenix. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next up on Start Here, how many times should a migrant's asylum case get heard? And does it make a difference if that migrant could be killed? We're back in a bit. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November. And while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is your 24-7 hiring partner working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. 
The key to understanding the modern situation at the southern border is that this is no longer about people trying to sneak through a hole in the fence, trying to get a good job somewhere. That might have been the narrative 20 years ago, but not anymore. Now the border is inundated with people who want to get apprehended by Border Patrol. They want to be processed because they're not just here for a paycheck. They are specifically here to apply for asylum. We were not treated like like human beings. We are now, we were treated like the, the, the worst kind of people in the world. And when someone claims they can't go back to their home country because they will be murdered, how much does that affect how you deal with them? Well, yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of an asylum seeker who says she will be targeted back at home because she's transgender. ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer was there in the court. Devin, first of all, can you just help us understand this woman's case and sort of what makes it unique? It's a gut-wrenching story, Brad, and one that's a reminder of the human uh, dimension to what we watch unfolding at the border. This woman, Estrella Santos Zacharias, 33 years old, um, says in court documents she fled Guatemala when she was 12 years old. She was sexually assaulted and harassed because of who she was, her, for her gender identity. Um, and she sought asylum in the United States in 2018. And an immigration judge, Brad, rejected those claims, um, not because she hadn't proven that she had been assaulted, but because... At the time, uh, this judge said she had not demonstrated enough evidence of potential future persecution for whatever reason. And so she was deported back to Mexico in 2019, where she's living now. I talked to her attorney uh, this week on email. He sent me an affidavit, sworn affidavit from Mrs. Santos Zacharias, who says she has been assaulted uh, just last week by three men at a bus stop in Mexico. She was recently bludgeoned unconscious at work uh, in an anti-trans attack. Horrific. We saw the pictures. Um, simply a, a, just a horrific story. Well, and, and I feel like the testimony is often like if I go back to my country or my neighborhood, like there's this gang that's going to kill me. Like that's a very real thing. And yet this essentially is somebody saying, I, I'm just going to be killed wherever I am because of who I am. But how, how do you prove there's that kind of threat facing you at home, though? That's right. And her attorneys are really pointing to the State Department's position on this. They have documented evidence that for transgender people in the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, including Guatemala, parts of Mexico, it's extremely dangerous. Transgender people, particularly transgender women of color, face harrowing levels of violence. So the United States is making clear to all governments that violence against transgender and gender diverse people is unacceptable and that perpetrators must be held accountable. And so that context here really adds urgency to uh, to her case. And one reason why her attorney is seeking humanitarian parole immediately in the United States uh, while this Supreme Court case plays out. When we're talking immigration cases, it's, it's known that sometimes individuals are pro se or may not have um, every ounce of, of, of lawyering behind them. And, and yet none of those details, Brad, actually came up in the Supreme Court arguments yesterday. This is a highly technical and jurisdictional case. I'll spare you the details, uh, but boils down to whether federal courts in this country should be able to second guess immigration officials and the decisions they make in asylum cases like this one in the case of uh, Ms. Santos Zacharias. I guess I don't understand why, even if you're right, that there's some sort of an issue exhaustion requirement here um, that wasn't met in these circumstances. I mean, and I got to tell you that uh, the justices wrestled with this for uh, for about an hour uh, on Tuesday, and a majority of them did seem inclined to at least give uh, give this woman a second shot at appealing her case in federal court. That's interesting, Devin, because like when you describe kind of how you like for every single asylum seeker, they're supposed to kind of prove that 
what will happen if they go back to their home country. It makes me feel overwhelmed just listening to it. Are these the sorts of cases, though, that end up overwhelming our immigration system when you can go to the border agent and then you can go to the courts and say somebody's got to listen to this again and again and again for years? And that's essentially the the argument that the Biden administration was making, Brad. Interestingly, they oppose uh, Ms. Santos Zacharias in this case. Certainly, the administration is supportive of transgender rights and has a lot of concern for these asylum seekers, but they don't want to set the precedent here of letting uh, these decisions get second-guessed over and over and over again, not just in the immigration system, but then into federal courts, and they drag on and on. That reflects Congress's judgment on how best to manage the high volume of immigration cases cases to achieve uniformity, efficiency, and fairness in an overburdened system. So it was fascinating to see the government argue yesterday that federal law explicitly prohibits any judicial review of a case like this one. On the other hand, Ms. Santos Zacharias's attorney was quite convincing in saying it's actually not in the text of the law um, that courts can't look at this, and in fact that they should look at this, in her case, because it's so compelling. If Ms. Santos Zacharias wins her case at the Supreme Court, if she's given another chance to have her appeal heard in the federal court system, uh, it could give a pathway for a lot of asylum seekers who were turned away uh, to have uh, uh, one last shot at being able to come to the United States. And when you talk about hundreds of people or thousands of people or millions of people, easy to forget how truly life and death this is for one given person at any given time, certainly on display in that hearing yesterday. Uh, Devin Dwyer, thank you. Thanks, Brad. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. I love the New York City subway. As someone who's lived here for 20 years, I have come to see the subway as the essence of American democracy. Dudes in suits sit next to dudes in coveralls, and if someone's acting a fool, it doesn't matter who you are, you will be called on it. And yet, in recent years, it has become more and more common to see entire sections of a train car occupied by people sleeping, clearly without a home. To see a mentally unwell person not just ranting, but getting aggressive with those around them. These have always been a thing, but it's much more intense right now. And across the country, with rapidly rising costs of living and fluctuations in mental health treatment, there's a huge overlap between homelessness, mental health, and urban areas that people just avoid. And let's be clear here, New Yorkers are not dumb. There's a level of sympathy and understanding here for a guy who's not doing so well. If you're not bothering anyone, no one's going to bother him. But the new mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, a former police officer, is increasingly being pressured to do something. What do we want? We are living in a a city where the administration thinks it's easy to immediately uh, enforce the police to arrest homeless people and throw them up in hospitals or in jails. It is a housing justice issue. So late last year, he announced a new approach. He said if someone is visibly mentally ill, if they're a danger to others or even themselves, they will be forcibly taken off the street. Whether they want to go or not, they will be checked into a shelter or a hospital. We have a moral obligation to help them get the treatment and care they need. Which has ignited a debate among New Yorkers, but also among leaders in other cities with similar issues who might be watching here. Is it okay to force someone to accept help who doesn't want it? Kim Hopper is a professor of clinical sociomedical science at Columbia University. He spent decades focused on the intersection of homelessness and mental illness in New York. Professor Hopper, can you first of all just describe this move by the mayor's office? Like, what does it do? It's a little unclear uh, at this point what it's going to do, but what it was announced to do was to send out a series of designated outreach workers 
to convince and if that doesn't work to coerce um, people who are struggling apparently with mental health issues on the street um, in for a period of not particularly well-defined treatment and uh, alternative arrangements. I'm not crazy. I'm not living in a pile of needles. I need a apartment that I can afford that will rent to me. And one of the difficulties is that uh, the police are extremely unhappy with this arrangement and always have been hmm. for 20, 25 years. Um, whenever they have been sort of dragooned into agents of um, sort of forced inclusion, they've resisted. But otherwise, it's very vague what's going to happen next, and the receiving end has got no description at all. Um, receiving end? What, what do you mean by the receiving end? Allegedly clinical um, precincts of some sort, either emergency beds or um, inpatient units, mm-hmm. but the only comments we've heard to date are from people who are... Um, surprised at having this additional burden thrown their way. I was about to say, like, as someone who lives in New York and have spent time in some of these other cities like, you know, L.A. and San Francisco that have large homeless populations, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that from a public perspective, homelessness is is become very much in your face, right? There, there are, like, lots of encounters, particularly among uh, unhoused people who are mentally unwell at the moment. And so I got to imagine that from, like, a mayor's perspective, you're like, yeah, there are big health problems all across the country. I can't solve all those. I do need to like do something because other members of the public are getting super unhappy. So I like I assume that's where, where like these mayors are coming from. Yeah, the two things that distinguish New York, however, in that sort of larger sort of mosaic of mayoral response, one is we've been at this for forty years. We've learned some lessons. Um, hmm. They seem to have been consigned to some um, very difficult to find archive because nobody seems to be drawing upon them. But the other thing is we have a right to shelter in this city, the only city that has a right to shelter in the country. That's an articulated policy, right, where you have to have enough open beds to accommodate every New York City resident. Articulated and court entered, I mean, as a result of litigation. And, you know, we have 60,000 people in shelters in addition to the people on the street the opposite is the case in a place like um, Los Angeles or or San Francisco. Mm. So the the harder question is what would it take to bring them in? It's not shelter alone, um, but we have pretty good answers to that. When we first got involved with this, Ellen Baxter and I were really impressed in the late 70s, early 80s by the extraordinary commitment of outreach teams that would literally spend months, sometimes longer than that, just establishing the liniments of trust that were necessary for people to take yet another chance on sort of coming in out of the cold. What's it like being homeless? Well, you eat breakfast after breakfast. You have a choice. You can hang out in this day room and be depressed, or you can walk around the streets, Washington Square Park or maybe Union Square Park. It would take, in some cases, weeks of offering sandwiches or coffee or something to get through the cold um, and then sort of capitalizing on those first steps to turn it into a longer-term commitment to a room somewhere with a case manager or some social support of some sort. And the police pull up one of them canine cars. That's with the big dog in the back. He said, okay, boys, let's have some ID. Where are you coming from? He said, we just came from the men's shelter and we're taking a walk. So we gave him some ID, and he gave all five of us uh, summonses for disorderly conduct and tell us to stay out of the neighborhood. 
Where does he want us to go? Like you're saying the goal is you want people to want to get off the street. Like that's key. I guess the goal is for people to figure out that there is an alternative that preserves both their self-determination and dignity and yet gets them in off the street without subjecting them to the regimen of the shelter. What mm. I was about to say is that, that that sort of outreach tradition was in some ways upended with a really amazing experiment in the early 1990s that said, look, we know there are lots of stages of building trust and maybe um, sort of graduated levels of coming in and taking a second chance, but suppose we simply offer to people a place of their own mm. at the outset. And they housed 500 New Yorkers in the next decade or so with this model. People with longstanding mental health, often substance abuse and alcohol issues as well. Mm. And you actually see a decline in some of the shelter census in the 90, late 90s, early 2000s, I think, when folks are, are not just cycling into some other place for a short order um, residence, but actually winding up in a place they, they want to stay in. They have a stake in protecting. And it turns out um, that's a great sort of matrix for starting to recenter your own life and to think about options like uh, drug treatment or mental health assistance of some sort. What happens then when it's not somebody with a sandwich but a, a police officer doing the evaluating? Well, I mean, I think the first would be the terms and conditions of the encounter, particularly if the police are somehow persuaded uh, to take this on. It's going to be very, well, not just awkward, but menacing from the get-go. They have a, a limited toolkit, right? And the toolkit they, they know best is one that is sort of overwhelming force um, delivered quickly. Um, and that's really not a great recipe for engagement. The only reason he came in office because he promised he cleaned the subways out and keep the homeless off the street. It's impossible, you know, because they're going to go somewhere. No, it's not fair. And I guess the second thing is what happens when people are clinically taken care of for a short period of time. That only works if you can vacate those beds. Well, where do they go next? Mm. And I guess third is what I mentioned earlier. How do we know this is working? Um, what kind of plans are there to bring it to scale? Uh, and those are old problems. Again, I want to make clear, I'm not particularly original thinker on this point. This is sort of 40 years of hard-won experience right. telling us this over and over again. Yeah, and opponents have already told the city they will be challenging this in court. Uh, Professor Kim Hopper from Columbia, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, the gears they are a shift in, but maybe not for long. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. 
There's something about sliding behind the wheel of a sports car. Getting from point A to point B suddenly becomes an afterthought. It's all about opening up the engine and feeling that horsepower. That is the sound of the newest model from Corvette. It can go 180 miles an hour, 0 to 60 in 2.5 seconds. And here's the biggest kicker of all, that engine you're hearing, it's a hybrid. I was very lucky. Very few journalists got to see the E-Ray before it was officially unveiled in New York City on Tuesday. That's ABC's auto reporter Morgan Korn. It's such a big deal because Corvette has officially been in existence now for 70 years, and this is the first hybrid one to come to market. She says if you look at this new car, you would not know it was an electrified version of the Stingray, except for the name, the E-Ray. There's this new mode. It's called Stealth Mode, where you can actually drive the E-Ray with just the electric battery. So there's no emissions, there's no loud exhaust noise, you can just pull out of your driveway. But while that might sound attractive to most car owners, a nice gentle start to your day, sports car manufacturers have a very particular problem on their hands. Part of the appeal of the Corvette has always been that throaty, muscular V8 engine. And that's why people buy the Corvette. When you turn that car on, my goodness, it will wake the entire neighborhood. If you're going to turn a nation of sports car lovers into electric car drivers, you're going to have to change a lot of minds. Some things have already changed, though. For years, electric cars were seen as the wimpy kids on the block. You press the pedal and not much happens. One of the complaints about driving a high-performance EV is that it's an appliance. Morgan says that is no longer the case. Modern EVs are getting quicker than their traditional counterparts. Instead of just being economical or just being sporty, they can be all of the above. The E-Ray is the first Corvette in history to have all-wheel drive. But the holdouts that have the car world nervous are customers like the Corvette owner, folks who, more than anything else, want to feel the combustion happening under their seat. Wait, Morgan, is the plan here just for car companies to ease all these folks into, like, a fully electric sports car? Like, that's where this is going? Yes. Between emissions and the threat of climate change, rapidly shifting government regulations, and just the economics of car making, all that means car companies plan to go all electric as soon as they can. Which means, if you love this sound, buckle your seatbelt. I said there are more economical EVs out there. Not this one, though. This will retail for $100,000. Again, gotta have that sports car vibe. That means paying a lot of money. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Thank you.